Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today are Sharon Kimathy, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey! And Vinoth Jayakumar, partner at VC firm Draper Esprit. Hi, nice to be here. It's great to have you on. Uh, today's topic has been labeled, the spirit is willing, but the market is weak. Uh, Sharon will be chatting with Vinoth about investments in the fintech space amidst these unprecedented times, if they are still unprecedented, six to nine months on. But first, we're going to be picking out some headline numbers from the news in the past week or so to chat about. Uh, Vinoth, as you're our guest, uh, you can go first. What number has caught your eye in the news recently? Uh, for me, it's been uh, it's been the one that uh, we're going to talk about later on. It's this malware out of Brazil. It's you know it's one of those interesting things around sort of thinking about where financial ransomware kind of kicks in and, and sort of how it affects the ecosystem more than you just think. Yeah, this uh, 150 apps that they've they've started uh, they've started affecting now in Brazil uh, called uh, the apps called Gmob, I believe, and uh, it's one that can record. Uh, screen lock patterns uh, and replace stuff afterwards uh, to give the hackers and the command and control center control of the user's device. Uh, they get people with the um, they get people with the uh, by uh, phishing emails from Google uh, Google Docs or WhatsApp into their emails. Uh, and I think it's also the first one that's been exported outside of its country. And I think yeah, it's it's a, it's a great one to to bring up enough because um, you know we people are becoming. Uh, a bit complacent, I think, and people have prophesized this sort of death of malware thing with uh, in, with a lot more increased security measures coming into play on apps and devices. Um, but there will always be some bad guys willing to sort of take people up on that arms race. And, you know, we've seen, uh, I, I remember seeing a report in Forbes not too long ago about how hackers claim they can defeat biometric sign, uh, sign-ins on your phone in 20 minutes just using the right tools and technology in some cases, just needing a, a $3 screen protector. But uh, you know, as we're seeing technology companies combining multiple forms of authentication into one these days to try and uh, ma- uh, match up that sort of convenience with security aspect. I know that Samsung's Galaxy 11 has a fingerprint scanner that combines like, all your pins and passwords into one authentication uh, measure. It kind of shows that uh, despite this, that security vulnerabilities will, will never really disappear and that uh, um, even though eyes are turned elsewhere, there are still bad guys out there looking to take advantage of even what people might think are the most secure uh, financial apps. But uh, everyone loves a good malware story. It's always very sexy headlines. But um, what do you think about it, Sharon? So I was recently conducting a roundtable with TMT CIFAS, which is the nonprofit for fraud prevention, um, and One World Identity. And they were talking about how facility takeovers, so what you were mentioning, which is like having an existing customer with the bank account or whatever, is hijacked by a fraudster and the unauthorized transactions are being made. So like money being transferred out or address on an account is being changed. So the new card is requested and it goes to the fraudster instead of you. Um, And they've seen a rise in that by 34% year on year. And also they said telecoms have become half of their overall cases alongside SIM swaps too. So that's like 30% like rise year on year and that's when they control your device for authentication as you mentioned like with biometrics they can just pretty much mimic what you have um, and it comes up on their screen so they can steal pretty much 
everything about you. And with this is also the behavioral analysis element of it. So one thing that they mentioned is that sadly with um, fraud checks and all that stuff and, and the fraud tech behind it, it's using machine learning that was done pre-COVID. So all of the analytics based around, you know, a user's movements or whatever were based prior to lockdown. So they're slightly running behind, whereas fraudsters seem to be a bit more sophisticated and have targeted users based on what their current behavior is. So that's how they're seeing their their increase. And, and they are a little bit worried in terms of having to play catch up with these fraudsters. But what do you think about it, Vinath? I was going to say that, you know, one of those really interesting things is we're learning more and more about how um, the bad guys, as it were, that were changing their attack vectors. You know, I think there's a piece of research that we looked at recently where uh, the companies are spending, you know, up to $100 million solving for roughly just under a trillion dollars worth of fraud, right? And it's an incredible amount of spend on, on something that's just been triggered because there's a financial tra- transaction taking place. You know, there's a there's a sort of this concept of flow of funds, and sort of every time there's an interaction with money, it's also an interaction for a bad guy to get involved. And it, and is what really interests me is just sort of how they think about new ways in which they can interject themselves into that equation. Excellent, great. Well, uh, we'll shift on to our other uh, news and numbers story, which is. Uh, five, um, we're going to be talking about Uber. So five is quite a small number, but it's actually um, five months since Uber uh, pumped the brakes on its plans to integrate more financial related products into its app and platform. Uh, but now um, it, it appears that Uber is hiring again for its financial services side. The Johnny Lee, Uber's engineering lead for financial products, uh, announced on LinkedIn uh, that the team was hiring in, in quotes, across the board. Uh, they're going to be preparing for a number of initiatives in 2021. Uh, and among the roles currently open are a senior product manager, uh, three software engineers, uh, all of them based in San Francisco and Palo Alto. Um, they seem to have a blanket focus on integrating Uber's cash uh, product with the firm's other services. So that's Eats, Rides, Transit, and Uber for Business. Um, Uber, Uber users in the US can already use Uber Cash to pay for those services, uh, but it's not been rolled out across all of its markets. Um, the job listings interesting say, interestingly say that the product team will work with Uber's money platform, um, which will support paying with Uber Cash. Um, it's certainly, it, it, I mean, five months is a short amount of time in tech, uh, I guess, for them to be rolling out this kind of stuff. But uh, it's definitely interesting to see them pump the brakes and then turn around and go, hold on, there might be something, there might be something to this. What do you think, Sharon? Yeah, I thought it was quite interesting that um, they're sort of trying to get into the payment space, uh, especially after they said that they're not going to. Um, And some market commentators were speculating that perhaps a distant possibility could be an Uber bank account, which would help facilitate those payments and save the company some capital by relying on banks for contractors' payments, Um, although that might be years away. But if it did have a bank account, it would likely end up linking to like a FDIC, like federally insured bank, instead of acquiring its own charter, just like many other fintechs do um, with institutions like Celtic Bank or Cross River for banking products. Um, But also, I thought it's fascinating that they're trying to now adopt this non-Western business model. So like WeChat and Alipay or Yandex in Russia. Um, So yeah, they're 
they look as though they're trying to opt for more of a super app, um, want to be the go-to app for, for everything. Um, but what are your thoughts on it, Vinoth? It's, it's super, super interesting because I think they have, um, they've, they've sort of changed directions a couple of times on this. Now, you know, I was, I was reading something today by Johnny Lee, at, at, uh, you know, one of the senior leaders at Uber, but what they're basically talking about is one wallet for all payments experiences, right? Now, this is not original because it already exists. You know, um, there's a lot of chat around the Ant IPO that was supposed to have gone live and then was pulled out. Uh, if you look at the Ant product and the Alipay product and sort of what WeChat do in that part of the world in Asia, it's incredible. What they've done is they've changed the way in which you interact with money, right? And a lot of what Uber will do is probably look at sort of what Grab and uh, Gojek have done in, in Southeast Asia. You know, they have literally become the way in which people make transactions and buy things. And the reason for that was because the tipping point was around a method for acceptance of payments, right? The QR code became the big thing that got adopted around the world. It didn't require a change of hardware. Your phone could produce the QR code. The same merchant could use the same barcode scanning tool that they could scan your QR code with, right? Now they've converted that into a secure payments method. And now it allowed anyone anywhere to accept payments. So I'm not sure what the Uber thesis would be because it is not yet seen as a place of uh, interaction of money just yet. Uh, but I think some of the things I've read around uh, them doing cashbacks for their drivers, that is interesting because they can do that pretty seamlessly with companies like Fidel out of London. Uh, there are lots of other companies that provide technology layers that enable Uber to build on top of. So I'm, I'm curious to see how they actually scale it. It certainly seems that Uber is pushing into as many markets as possible. I, I personally find it a bit strange to be looking at the the Thames Clippers sailing up and down the river in London and having a big Uber boats written on the side of them, which I always found a bit jarring to me. But maybe maybe Uber Cash, Uber Money, Uber Wallet won't sound as strange to my ears. And of course, they are sponsoring um, the two professional French football leagues as well. So definitely a lot of branching out there from Uber. Um, but Sharon, you've got you've got a, a big store, a big number in uh, smashes the other two numbers on on today's show, uh, and also you know big news in the US. Yeah, absolutely. I was just sort of holding myself together after that shudder of the Uber boat. <laughs> um, but I'll I'll pull it together now for the 11.6 billion which PNC has agreed to buy Spanish Bank for that amount. BBVA, that's the Spanish bank that they are um, acquiring. So it's US subsidiary. Although, fun fact, it's not all of them. So it's most of its branches will be going to. Uh, PNC, so Texas, Alabama, Arizona, but it's still going to hold on to the New York branch um, and a few others before everything signed off. So the all cash deal is nearly 20 times the US subsidiary's 2019 earnings, equivalent to half of the Spanish bank's current market capitalization. The acquisition sees it create America's fifth largest bank by assets. The bank jumps ahead of US Bank National Association and Trust Bank. The product of B&T's 
28 billion acquisition of SunTrust back in February of 2019. So PNC now sits under Citi, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and JP Morgan Chase. The BBVA US subsidiary does have a significant market share in America's Sunbelt. So as I did mention before, Texas, Alabama, and Arizona, but also holds more than 100 billion in assets and, and operates 637 branches. So following this deal, PNC will have more than 550 billion in assets. It is still some way behind the top four U.S. banks, which sees it have at least two trillion, my word, um, in assets. Uh, the sale will land in six months, um, and it's interesting because PNC sold its 17 billion stake in BlackRock, uh, which is one of the world's largest asset managers, just a few months back, and that sum paid for BBVA's U.S. operations almost exactly matches that sale after tax. And um, it's quite interesting for for this acquisition taking place because back in May this year, there were rumors swirling around Goldman Sachs being on the hunt for a key acquisition in the banking sector with Wells Fargo. US Bank Corp or PNC. Um, and it was speculated to be on the shortlist, according to uh, Fox Business. Uh, but yeah, so one of their reporters, Charles Gasparino, uh, said that Goldman Sachs had a weakening biz model um, and it would force a merger. Uh, but now it looks like PNC might be out of the question, or perhaps not. Maybe now it looks even more attractive that it has BBVA. But what do you think, Alex? I know this is right up your street. <laughs> well, I think the thing that uh, that I love about this, especially the like you mentioned, the BlackRock sale and then the BBVA subsidiary acquisition, it just has uh, the feel of a a transfer deadline day in football or uh, or American baseball um, trades. Uh, swapping one in and one out, um, <laughs> dropping your your massive stake in an asset management company, and then picking up a huge retail banking network. Uh, and it, it, it's true, the um, PNC is Pittsburgh based, uh, so it has a big presence in the northeast side of America. Uh, it's got uh, a fairly large branch network around that area, and a few in Florida. But look, if you look at its footprint, um, its retail banking. Um, uh, operations are basically all based in the east, on the east coast, or just with it, just beyond the east coast. Uh, and this, the BBVA uh, acquisition gives it uh, a huge presence presence in the US. But when it comes to retail banking, um, for me, uh, it seems like uh, it's a huge. I think it's a huge acquisition in terms of you know the the numbers involved, but also a big statement of intent from PNC about the way it wants to do its business from here on. Um, dropping BlackRock. I mean, dropping is a, a strong term, but selling the, their stake in BlackRock and then taking up uh, a large proportion of retail banking in uh, the Sunbelt across the south and middle of, of America shows where they think uh, the wind is blowing. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it also massive numbers in terms of the fact that it is now the, the fifth largest bank, um, but the ones above it still dwarf it in size. Um, and perhaps, uh, like you said, a statement of intent in terms of someone, uh, larger banks have been sniffing around, asking about, you know, share prices, uh, potential acquisitions and PNC wants to throw its weight around a bit and say, you know, we can still, we can still duke it out at the top of the pile. We don't, you know, we're not, we're not in trouble and you don't need to take us over. Uh, have, have you got any, any thoughts about this, Vinoth? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot, it seems to be a lot at play here. It, you know, it's, it's. There are over 5,000 banks in the U.S., uh, and 
you know, a lot of that tends to get forgot, forgotten about because we, we tend to focus, you know, on the top 10 banks, the names you've heard of, the JP Morgans, the Wells Fargo's, the cities. It's banking in the U.S. is completely nuanced, uh, all the way from an interaction at a branch through to how it is online to how full stack it is. You know, back in the day, there used to be this concept of a, of a, a banking supermarket and city was kind of that leader in that space. I think looking at this transaction, it's 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 interesting because I we spend a bit of time studying uh, how consolidations across banks would actually take place, and the number one driver has either been a, um, a revenue sort of point, or it's it's typically been more cost than revenue. So one of the big things for for a lot of these banks is their cost income ratios are in the seventy to eighty percent mark. So for every dollar of income, they're spending seventy to eighty percent uh, eighty cents servicing it. Now. It, you know, I can see this transaction actually making sense from that perspective because you know if you read if you read what the CEO PNC says they can they can drive down the cost so they can take over the retail footprint drive it through the PNC uh, backbone infrastructure and then drive down the cost and so increase their margins as they go so you know Sharon you're talking about twenty times earnings it may not be all that crazy. Now we move into part two of the podcast. This is where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic. As I mentioned at the top of the pod, we've got uh, we're going to chat rather about fintech investments and do a bit of a dive into specific investments made by Draper Esprit. But before that, we're going to give Vinoth a chance to give us a little introduction into his role and how he sees the market shaping up in this crazy turbulent year. So Vinoth, please take it away. Hi, so I, I lead fintech investing for Draper Esprit. Uh, Draper Esprit are a slightly later stage technology investor based in London. Uh, we took the unusual step of listing ourselves. So we IPO'd about four years ago. And as a result of that, we're investing uh, on balance sheet. And through that, we're basically becoming a patient capital long-term vehicle. And so t- taking that lens into sort of how we're thinking about the fintech landscape, Broadly, sort of, it breaks down into a B2C versus a B2B type thinking for us. B2C is about how we interact with money, and B2B is about the infrastructure software that enables that interaction with money. So we've kind of investing all the way through the spectrum, but that's kind of uh, how we're thinking about the world. Some of our investments include the likes of Revolut and 26 uh, on the B2C side, Free Trade. We're also investors in infrastructure software and companies like Form3 uh, and in Thought Machine. Yes, and some of the investments we've seen from you guys this year in the fintech space, as you did mention, free trade, but also primary bid, thought machine, and also form three. So, what is the it factor that drew your interest to invest in these particular players? Is there any pattern and any advice for future firms that pitch to you guys? You know, Sharon, the the honest answer is um, success has no stereotype, and so it's uh, there's no sort of one size fits all answer. But I will say this, uh, typically, you know, this is through the, the Draper DNA and, you know, from back in the day, how DFJ used to think about deals that they did in, in Silicon Valley. It is really about uh, a founder and their vision for where they're traveling to with a particular product and in a particular point in time. So if I, if I were to take, um, let's take Thought Machine as an example. You know, Thought Machine is, is founded and run by Paul Taylor, who's, a, who's an ex-Google engineer. You know, he, he authored the speech to uh, text-to-speech uh, 
code for Google, which is still being used by Google. Now, how do you take that mindset and then apply it into coding for banking, right? Now, I think that's the, the fundamental first principles thinking of what should banking look like. And then you work back from how do you need it to be built? As opposed to saying, here's what an incumbent does, I'm going to go and do it better. So there is an element of thinking about founders who sort of break the mold and founders who kind of rethink things from first principles. And as a result of that, they attract a world-class team around them because people have kind of joined something they, 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 they kind of can connect with and they can see how they, they fit as part of a longer thesis. That's, I think, the thing that stands out for us. Primary bit, again, it's, it's the team. You know, Anand, who, who runs the company, he has a personal drive to, to create retail inclusion for the everyday investor like you and I. You know, and that singular these drive. players that Draper has invested in are doing quite well. But are there any areas of fintech or fintech players that you've seen that have been impacted by COVID market volatility? Certainly, uh, certainly. So I think you'll see uh, the the neo banking, challenger banking plays see a, a change to their mix in revenues. For example, you know, it's 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 an obvious fact that you know people can't travel, and so for someone like Revolut, the mix of the, the revenues they will get on, on, on the card, it, it will switch towards more subscription revenues. Right now, is that a good thing? Yes, because it's much more recurring. You actually think about higher resiliency of revenues. So the quality of earnings equation has improved. Uh, we've also seen uh, software that is selling into payments for travel kind of take a dip, you know, and there's no surprises there. Uh, we're seeing an uptick in fraud, interestingly, uh, so we're investors in a company called Ravelin. It turns out that actually uh, with every dip in the economic cycles, uh, the levels of fraud go up because the fraudsters get more creative about how to attack people, interestingly. Uh, and so, you know, you get a, there's a mixed story about how we, we've seen this pandemic play out. Free trade seeing record volumes because the markets are being completely volatile. Volatility is always good for any broker. So, you know, say, sort of seeing the spillover effects into primary bid, when the markets um, dipped, there were quite a few companies that were considering re-upping their, their balance sheets to show themselves up to be ready for you know, the next two years. So they're all trying to do a fundraise on the public markets. And they managed to tap into retail using a platform like Primary Bid, which, by the way, has never existed in any part of the world. Yeah, and you mentioned Draper's uh, looking into B2B and B2C fintechs, and those have really risen this year. The likes of Thought Machine and Form 3, which Draper Esprit invested in, they're 33 million strategic investment this summer seem to be thriving. Are cloud native software and people have spoken about cloud for so many years and that additional infrastructure layer really the future of banking and financial services architecture? And if so, why is it taking so long to apply these tools as we've been talking about them for so many years? <laughs> That's a great question. The, the why it takes so long, is it's, it, it baffles me. But let me, let me start with... Um, why why the time is now uh and i think it it goes back to something we talked about earlier on in the show which is about what what are you trying to really fundamentally achieve with an with an interaction with money typically there's this there's this idea of the flow of funds and it starts with this idea of capturing income and then it flows through into capturing spend and in each of those interactions something's happening it, you know every time you touch money it either costs money or you make money you can be neutral, but it'll be either one of the two things. Now, the more you get into a place where people are demanding real-time services, like, for example, having a, a notification on your phone that says, hey, you just spent you know, £2.50 on a coffee at, at uh, Cafe Nero, 
right? It's, it seems intuitive and simple, but it turns out if you don't have the right software infrastructure, you can't just layer on top, right? And, and it's, it, it feels like it's a very simple thing to do, but actually there's so much legacy in the back end of banking that it's actually so hard to actually layer on top anything that's new. So what we've seen is, and a lot of this thinking has actually come out of the work we did when we became investors in Revolut. We were basically thinking about um, two things. I mean, where, where is all the cost in trying to create a sustainable, successful Revolut? Turns out that the, the big parts of that puzzle was basically in three broad buckets. The first was in fraud, the second was in payments, and the third was in core banking systems. Core banking systems being the, the biggest of the buckets and the, and the highest level of cost. Within a, within a bank. Now, your question was also about why should it be cloud native? Cloud is the only way in which it creates a scalable platform for these companies. So one is the speed and one is the incremental cost of the additional user, significantly lower with the cloud as opposed to an on-premise setup. And it also enables them to go multi-jurisdiction from day one because the clouds can scale. In fact, the banks are now um, talking about uh, what they call multi-cloud. So can your software work on AWS and Google and Azure all at the same time? Now that's even harder to do because you have to have different instances. You have to make sure that they're all joined up. You have to also make sure that they're modularized. So you know, doing that through a single tenanted platform is very, very difficult to do. So I think the, you know, is why does it take so long? It's because you know someone said to me once, you know, banks are a museum of technology. So you you know when you go in there, you look at all the history and legacy of What's been put in place? We talked earlier about PNC buying BBVA. In the backhand of that, there's going to be a huge MA of the technology. You know, there's going to be two core banking systems that come together, two ledgers that come together, two payments infrastructures that come together. All of those add to that museum, as it were. So, you know, layering something on top of that is hard, which is to get to get to the future of, of how we think about those things, the likes of Thought Machine and the likes of Form 3 are actually talking to the banks about what they call the green fields. So they are their so-called speedboats to try and attack the revolutes and the monzos of this world. So those are completely separate to the main bank. So they're quite easy to do with, uh, with a whole new platform. And finally, what fintech spaces, players or areas do you see thriving next year? You know, we've been... We've been researching this a little bit. Uh, we've also been talking to quite a few banks and quite, talking to quite a few founders. It feels overwhelmingly that it's going to be B2B fintech. And the reason is because uh, on the B2C side, as much as those innovations continue to, to take place, whether it's a new Revolut or a new free trade or a nuance on that, it, it really comes down to the game being equalized with some of the incumbents. And the incumbents have the money to invest in software. So now there's a there's sort of this tipping point towards taking out new infrastructure software for banks, whether that's on your new KYC systems or rec tech or on lending, whichever of those modules you're talking about, there is a good player in, in every part of the world that a bank can onboard. So it, it feels like it's going to be overwhelming the uh, fintech architecture and specifically it's going to be in some of the big spend areas for the banks. Okay, now we have reached part three of the show, and that means it's time for the fintech jail. Vinoth is going to submit an industry buzzword, phrase, or term to Sharon and I, and we will decide whether it should be sent downtown. So, Vinoth, what term have you brought with you today that you think should be locked away for good? (laughs) 
The term is embedded finance. Embedded finance. That's something that's appearing with more regularity in my experience in the industry. But why, why do you think it should be locked away? I think it's because every interaction we have has something to do with money. So it is by definition already embedded. And so you don't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of investors creating a term because they're inventing an industry. So I think there's an element of, it's like, it's like saying uh, we're going to invest in mobile. Everything is mobile. Uh, it's like saying we're going to invest in software. Everything is software. So I think everything interacts with money and therefore it's already by definition embedded. Interesting. I, I think that uh, I agree with you in that. I think it's an industry scrabbling for trying to create a market. I think that I think there's, in my experience, people in the industry ne- never quite know what something is unless you put a buzzword on it. So, uh, and we've had many of those sent down over the past few weeks. But yeah, I agree. I think that we are entering in a, a phase where finance is becoming a more fluid term, and people are unsure how to use the right term to reference to reference it. You know, when you have technology companies and telecoms firms and people like that embedded, uh, creating embedded finance, embedding finance into their services. But uh, I, I don't know. What do you think, Sharon? Hmm, yeah, I have seen it quite a bit um, in press releases that are sent to us. Um, hmm, I think I, I would agree with you in that it, it's a bit of a nuisance because everything already is embedded. Um, but let me put it to you. What term would you prefer to see? Would you prefer to see none of this at all or just get straight to the point? What's your pitch for it to go in, in the jail? Get straight to the point. You know, like it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like that Uber cash conversation. It says it all in the name, Uber cash, right? Are they a bank? No. Could they be a bank? Yes. Uh, and it, it tells you everything you need to know, you need to know right off the bat. I think if it's embedded finance is primarily being touted by uh, large insurance firms or telecoms companies or people who have a large subscriber base where they've done something else that's not in financial services and they're trying to go into financial services. They you know use a platform like Rails Bank or, or one of these uh, or, or Mambu to kind of provide a service that allows them to, to sell banking as it were to one of these uh, to their subscribers. I think you can just go straight to the point about it's cash for this or it's insurance for that or it's lending for this. You know, you can avoid the, uh, you can skip the embedded piece. <laughs> wow. I think that I, I just had a revelation that this discussion is pretty much the, the distilled idea of fintech jail in its entirety. You know, a, a section about how the, the industry needs to be more upfront with what it's offering and not hide behind generic terms um, to try and be more marketable. So I think I, I, I've, I've just stumbled across, across this revelation. I feel like we have to put it in the jail. Yeah. This, is like, this is like the definition of why we made this segment. <laughs> it really is. It's almost the winner of FinTech Jail, if there was a winner. <laughs> Does that mean it gets life? I don't know. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. It ends up being top dog in the prison, in the, I guess. I mean, it is the embodiment of, of everything that we want about. So I think it has to. You're going to hear more and more investors talk about embedded finance. So I'm seeing that more and more panels I'm on and more of the conversations I'm having with the other investors in the ecosystem, this word is cropping up. And I'm just like, you know, what does it actually mean, right? Are we just talking about an insurer trying to sell a savings product? Because if so, then it's just a savings product. So let's talk about the technology you need to build a savings product. Mm, <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're nipping it in the bud. Yeah, giving us a chance to get in ahead of it. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, you know what? 
let's lock this one up because we have to and we, we have to like give it life quarantine. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm I'm down to clown um with this one going down for, for life, I guess. Yeah, I mean I I, I it's it's more like an insane I think it's being put away in, in an institution more than anything else. Just quarantine for its own good before it can do any more harm. Ooh. But uh if yeah. not to stretch the metaphor too far. But, uh, <laughs> cool, yeah, in that case, Embedded Finance, uh, so long, farewell. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks to Sharon and Vinoth for joining me. Uh, before we sign off, everyone gets a chance to plug socials and websites, our uh, LinkedIn profiles and such. So Vinoth, um, perhaps you'd like to go first. Have you got anything to plug? Uh, I'm. You, you can find me at, at, uh, at Draper Esprit. I'm on Twitter at uh, Vinoth J, B-I-N-O-T-H-J. Excellent. Sharon, what about you? You can find me at Fintech Kits. That's Fintech and then K-I-T-S, football kits, if you will. Whatever kit you are thinking of, it's just that. It's just multiple Fintech kits. Um, and also I'm plugging myself because I have been in a rival podcast. <laughs> How could you? I know, I'm such a Judas, but no, I think... In terms of the podcasting space, you can have more than one, surely. Um, and they're, they're nice enough. And it's the 11FS one. Oh, um, I like them. Yeah, yeah, they're very well known in the industry. So I'm on their latest episode. So check Thank that you. out. Yeah, and, I, and I'll be in there after dark as well. I think that's coming out on December 15th something like that so yeah just have a look on my twitter i'll keep things updated if you want to see what i'm up to and of course please do check out the latest banking technology magazine um and future supplements excellent and you can find me on twitter at ad hamilton 91 and on linkedin by searching my name and i'm also moderating a panel at fintech connect on the 1st of december uh talking about how fintech innovation has affected capital markets uh spoiler not very much um so look forward to that as for fintech futures you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com on twitter at at fintech futures and on linkedin just by searching fintech futures and looking for our lovely logo the two f's if you like this podcast and our other episodes then please subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify soundcloud or your favorite podcasting service and also we would really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by sharing with a friend writing a review or shouting it from the rooftops uh thanks very much for any and all support uh, we will see you soon for another episode of what the fintech but until then goodbye <laughs>